New VanCast to wrap up the week. And Tom, we got to have that Game 7 energy. We finally get a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Not that energy is usually an issue for us here on the VanCast. No, but, but, but uh, J-Pat, we're in Vancouver, which means we have to revel in a Leafs Game 5 loss and bring that small town energy to bear. <laughs> does it, does it, J-Pat, make up for the Canucks' awful season? Does it? Hey. Does it? I, it got... It got the morning guys an entire show, so uh, <laughs> credit to them. <laughs> I love it. I I, I, yeah. I I love it. But I also, I mean, it feels very, feels very like cold prairie town of us. You know, like, right? Well, I think, I think what happened was Alex Galchenyuk must have listened to the last fan cast where we were praising him for you know a rebirth and and doing what he was doing, and then the, you know, the I was thinking as watching that game, I was like. Has this guy earned himself two million, two to three million dollars this year? Like this in this series? I was thinking that all, and then the giveaway, and it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, that was a that was a costly mistake in a lot of ways for a pending UFA. Well, we get a game seven for sure, and there may be another one coming down the pipe. And it looked for a while there like Nashville was going to extend its series with Carolina, but ultimately the Hurricanes prevail. A couple of overtime games, so we're getting some good excitement. We're getting. Uh, entertainment value, certainly in the playoffs. Of course, the Canucks on the sidelines, they're not involved in any of this. Nashville, uh, to by, you, the way. Though, Thomas Nashville by the way, what a disaster. What a disaster. <laughs> like, you hold on to guys like Granlund and Halla. You know, like, they were going to sell. They decide not to sell at the deadline. They hold on to all these guys. For what? Like, for what, JPEG? For th- three playoff home dates? For three playoff home dates in a yeah, pandemic? I mean, I- like, you know they're gonna they're gonna I expose watched. both Johansson and Duchesne in, in expansion. I think those guys total sixteen million in cap space. Like, how does that this this team get better? Talk about out of ideas. My goodness. Well, I was watching that game and thinking, like, look at all these future Vancouver Canucks that are sharing the ice at Bridgestone Arena. You just mentioned Halla and Granlin and uh, Brock McGinn and Martinuk. And <laughs> it was just a convention, a convention of future Vancouver Canucks. God, guys, uh, we've talked about the last pieces. 48 hours. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Hey, you, uh, I said, you're a man of your word. Uh, credit to you. Not that uh, this should come as a surprise to anybody, but you've said for a couple of pods here that, you know, you were going to drill down on the Canucks' current salary cap situation, and you did. Uh, again, another instructive piece. If people haven't had a chance to read it, I think, uh, you know, it, it just sets up what's to come here in the weeks and months ahead. And, you know, it's not that, because, look, you and I talk about this three times a week, but when you see the current contractual situation, when you see their cap situation as it stands right now, and they're going to get Pedersen done, and they're going to get Quinn Hughes, but that first chart that you have, in your piece, mm-hmm. like it just slaps you in the face. Like it can't do anything but sort of, you know, you've got Tyler Mott on the right side on the second line, essentially right now, based on players that the Canucks have under contract at the moment. And and there's just nothing but massive gaps all over the yeah, place. Yeah, work to be done. <laughs> there is work to be done. Well, and like Zach McEwen, you know, he barely gets off my top nine at any point in the exercise, really. Um, you know, he, get, he finally gets the fourth line eventually once I move JT Miller into the into center. And then people in the comments are like, you're a flip-flopper. You're a flip-flopper. You are, it's like, no, what do you mean? Like, I'm still not a big fan of JT Miller at center. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to project the Canucks to move him there, considering I think that's what the organization's thinking. Like, at some point, my opinion, 
matters less in projecting what the Canucks are going to do than what I expect them to do. Like, come on, not flip-flopping on this. Anyway, the, yeah, I mean, how about the left side of the defense? Like, Jack Rathbone is the only, like, Jack Rathbone will qualify again as a rookie skater next season. He's the only lefty under contract. Full-time lefty, left side D. Like, it's, it's, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do here, and the Canucks need an awful lot. I mean, even once you bring back Pedersen and Hughes, I still think you're talking about constructing an entirely new third line, at least, and rebuilding a defense core that was nowhere near good enough. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, I tried to spell it out, but once you get to like 17 players with Pedersen and Hughes re-signed, you know, you're, you're not looking at a ton of cap space. You're looking at something like eight and a half to, you know, maybe less, maybe a little more, depending on where Pedersen and Hughes come in. But it's like, man, your, your average top four defenseman in the NHL makes like four and a half million. You know, like you can't reliably reconstruct a, a bottom six and a defense core with 8.5 million in cap space. It's, it just can't be done. You, you can't expect to be able to achieve that, even though, of course... And this is the other thing a lot of people took from my article yesterday, like, oh, well, they, they can't punt on the season. It's like, no, it's not about punting on the season. You obviously have to try to do your best to ice a contending team, you know, at, at this stage of the team's development within the parameters that you're able to work through. And whether that includes carving out additional cap space through trades or whatever on the, um, you know, or, or creativity on the trade market or in free agency. Like, yeah, you, you got to work on it. The things that I was really spelling out that I think the club should avoid are trading significant futures to offload a Holtby, a Beagle, a Russell or an Erickson deal. And, you know, avoiding using a buyout on a contract like Braden Holtby's, which will eat into a 22-23 cap situation that I think the club needs to be extraordinarily protective of. Because finally... It augurs, you know, flexibility for this team. And I, I think it was your column yesterday that kind of drove the conversation. Like there was a lot of chatter in the market yesterday about, you know, trading this first round pick here. Like the draft lottery coming up on Wednesday will know where the Canucks are slotted at that point. And I don't know, maybe it's people are starting to look ahead now to the draft lottery and starting to brush up on their prospects and all those types of things. But I, I sort of picked up on this sense yesterday in the market that there was a lot of talk about, you know, should they trade, should they be open to trading their first pick here in the draft? And again, we'll see where the ping pong balls ultimately slot them. But if they stay where they are, give or take, I mean, they're, they got the ninth best odds if they stay at nine or drop to 10, whatever, we're talking about a top 10 pick that has currency. Like, to me, if you are going into the market with a top 10 pick, you're going big game hunting. Like, you're looking to add a piece. Tom, they can't take on a piece with a sizable contract commitment right now. No, and people are like, <laughs> I mean, people, you know, the dissonance, there's a dissonance between excitement for how Pod Colson can revamp the Canucks bottom six, for example, 10th overall pick. Vasily Pod Colson and the idea that you should trade a pick, right? It's like, um, it's like that family guy episode. It's like, it's like you could have a boat or you could have what's behind the, what's in the mystery box. Like it could be anything. It could even be a boat, you know, like and people are willing to walk away from something that feels ephemeral, like a, a pick that you're not even sure if it's one, two, nine or 10 in the draft lottery 
as opposed to, you know, two years down the line, if you get like a, you know, 20 year old stud center, Mason, uh, Mason McTavish breaking in, you know, and what that could mean for the Canucks in terms of their depth and on and on in a season in which Pedersen's 24 and, you know, Hughes is 23. Like, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm not, I've, I personally would not be strongly advocating for the Canucks to trade that first round pick unless they're trading back to, to accumulate additional bullets to use in an uncertain class where, you know, I do think lists are going to be divergent and there's a very good chance that the Canucks, you know, could, for example, take like the player they rate 15th best in the class in the 30s or 40s, right? Like if you're trading back and getting another second round bullet, you know, that that might be worth it to me just because of this weirdo class. But right. typically, yeah. typically speaking, I would not advocate dealing that pick to get off of money like that to me. That to me is, uh, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Right. And, and look, they did it with JT Miller. That worked out all right for the Canucks. I still didn't like the trade in the moment. Um, and, you know, it just doesn't feel like the kind of move that an organization at this point in its competitive cycle uh, should be going down for a second time in three years. Like you know, no if kidding. you were looking to put the fin- <laughs> yeah, if you want to put the finishing touches on something, uh, you know, maybe you're looking if you if your first round pick is going to be in the the final five of the first round, like that's a totally different conversation. Like I look at I look at Colorado. I just again, I keep dreaming of the way that the Canucks can get back to a roster that looks something like Colorado's, and you know, McKinnon was the first overall pick. I mean, that one and and an incredible first overall pick. He wasn't Niall Yakupov. He was Nathan McKinnon. You know, Landeskog went second overall, but Ranton was 10th in his draft class. You know, they completely missed on Connor Bleakley in 2014, like swing and a miss. But you could afford to do that when you crush it the way they did in those other drafts. Plus, you know, you look at the way that they're surrounding that core. Tyson Jost, Kale McCarr, Bowen Byram, Alex Newhook, all first rounders Ew. as well. So like, <laughs> Bowen Byram not even in the lineup. Like, right. Bowen Byram's so good, and he's not even in the lineup. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. They also have Connor Timmons taking yep. what, what, a pick before Cole Lynn. Er, um, right, early. And he's, early, early he's awesome. Like, that guy's playing major minutes for 25 teams in this league. Barely in the lineup for Colorado. And, and then I saw that they were cutting their head of pro scouting loose yesterday. Uh, amateur, wasn't it? Or yeah, sorry, yeah, amateur scout. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know the dynamics well enough to have a really informed take on that. I should probably uh, dive in or dig into that a little bit. But yeah, that was, uh, you know, I mean, look, they've done pretty well. Like they've done pretty well <laughs> yeah. on the amateur side. Um, you know, ta- Tampa's build is a little different when, but again, I mean, Stamkos, Hedman, both top, top, top picks. And Vasilevsky was a first rounder as well, but you know, I mean, when we've talked about, and they turned Druan into Sergachev. So you know what? You know there was. You know what? I uh, I get this thing that people say to me a lot, J Pat, where they're like, "You have misled the market into thinking that entry level contracts are key to winning. Like teams don't win on their entry level contracts." So I, I'm I'm wondering. I, I meant to do this yesterday, actually, but I'm wondering if you would give me like you know your top five teams of the cap era, like the last 15 years, your top five teams with rebuilds that you think in an ideal world, the Canucks would end up emulating. Oh, off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I like Colorado's done. Like Colorado's done. Yeah. They, uh, they don't really have an entry level star at the moment. Do they? They just have uh Kel McCarr. 
Well, Kilmacar's a star. <laughs> yeah. And Byram and Byram and Newhook are gonna be there if they're not already yeah. yeah. I mean, but they so. they sort of wasted um Nathan McKinnon's entry level deal and yep. kind of didn't pay for it. Right? I mean they still got better, but there were some years of pain there. But yeah, I mean the Leafs. The, the Leafs. The Leafs, yeah. Then they're and they're the final year of Marner and Matthews' ELCs. They were able to go out and add John Tavares in free agency, and then they lost to the Bruins, who ended up making it to Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final in the first round. I think pretty clear that you know a bounce or two, one way or another, the Leafs could have had a deep run in the last year of Marner and Matthews' ELCs. Who else? Are we looking at Carolina? Does Carolina qualify? Yeah, I mean, Carolina they, qualifies. Their their latest build. They, uh, I mean, look, they made the Eastern Conference Final what two years ago with uh, yeah. Sebastian Ajo before the uh, offer sheet, right? So, right, yes. I mean, that one's easy. That one's clear. And then, of course, this season they've still got um, Andrei Sveshnikov on his entry level deal. Not to mention Martin Nekash. So that's you know two thirds of their, uh, or sorry, that's a third of their top six. And then, you know, I mean, that that's sort of it for them. But two-thirds of your top six on entry-level deals in Carolina. Uh, I don't know. Who else am I missing? Chicago. They won the cup with Taves and Kane on their ELCs. Right. Yeah, Pittsburgh. Yeah. They won a cup with Evgeny Malkin. Their first cup came with Evgeny Malkin on his ELC. Like, there are exceptions. The, the Los Angeles Kings won their cups after Doughty and Kopitar got paid. I mean, it can be done, but... From, and, and Tampa, of course, is like my favorite example because you make Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Final with uh, Stamkos and Hedman on their entry-level deals in 2011, right? They make the Stanley Cup Final in 2016. That's with, with Kucherov on his ELC. And then they then they win the Cup. And the year they win the Cup, they've got two top four defensemen in Cernak and, and Sergeyev, plus their second-line center and Anthony Sorelli all on, their, on, on ELC deals as well. Um, you know, the Tampa Bay Lightning are like the perfect example of managing it. So, yeah, I mean, does every cup winner have a star player on an entry-level deal? No. But if you go around and sort of pick out the most successful rebuilds of the last 15 years in the NHL, you're going to see a lot of teams making deep runs with players on the on the entry-level system. And that's why it's key to sort of manage it and why, you know, the Canucks sort of burning – Last season, right? And and it wasn't it wasn't just the results. It was their entire approach. It was the cutting of player personnel spend. It was allowing every UFA to walk. It was not exercising a buyout. Not even making an offer to Toffoli, right? Like the club didn't conduct themselves with ambition last year, and that was like a high leverage window to go for it. And now this year, you kind of need to spend the off season pruning a bit, being really disciplined. And that's too bad because it's like the organization's goals have sort of vacillated in the opposite direction of like what the structural logic of their build suggests they should do. And it's like that just, I'm frustrated for Canucks fans and I'm frustrated for this young core that it's sort of unfolded this way. Tom, we record this on this Friday morning heading into the weekend. It was a week ago today we heard from both Jim Benning and Travis Green. Travis Green getting his extension. Uh, we were told the next order of business was Ian Clark and then this review of both the remaining coaching staff and the front office as well. Uh, a week later, where do we stand with all of that? I know that uh, you were on with Sakaris and Price uh, on Thursday afternoon uh, with a, an update on the Sedins as well. Well, just that it's not it, it's not going to happen this week, right? And I think that's not because it's just not getting announced. Like they don't want to announce it on a Friday, so wait till Monday. 
I think there's still some things to figure out. I think it's, you know, the, the twins are deliberate, intelligent, you know, like fully formed adult cats. They are, uh, they are interested in working. You know, they are interested in doing things a certain way. They're interested in making sure that they're put into a position where they feel they can help. And, you know, I still think it's going to happen. I think fundamentally, and this is, you know, so often when we're talking about or, or sort of empathizing our way through issues or possible news stories, you know, we almost, you almost assume like a cynical bent for key decision makers. The twins, you kind of have to throw that out the window. Like, I genuinely think this is still going to happen. And, and the fundamental reason for it, I think, is that the twins view the franchise as, you know, like their life's work. Like they put two decades into hockey in Vancouver. They've adopted this place as their home. I think there's a sense that if they can help, they want to. And yet it's not done. Uh, I think they're weighing something. I'm not sure what it is. And, you know, I'm curious to see sort of ultimately where this out, where this lands and exactly what they end up doing. But I do think they'll join. I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure when. Uh, or, or in what exact capacity, uh, but they're still working on it. And then, and then the Ian Clark and the coaching staff thing, you know, that one's, that one's interesting. I think the club definitely was committed to trying to retain Clark. The industry certainly expected that to be difficult. And, you know, I, I haven't really kept my finger on the pulse of that over the course of this week. My, my, my best intel was sort of last week in regards to their overall posture, but, you know, Make no mistake, the club values what Clark brings, not just in terms of preparing his goalies, but also in terms of contributing on the amateur and pro scouting side uh, for goaltending prospects or, or hopefuls. So, um, look, it would be well worth their time to get that done, especially in a non-capped league. But I do understand how it's complicated, uh, considering how late in the day we are and, you know, considering Clark's nature, right, which is proud, a um, little bit headstrong. Uh, certainly confident in himself and and probably believes he's got a lot of leverage based on the work he's done in Vancouver over the past, you know, three, four years, uh, quite rightly. So we'll see if they can get that one done. Uh, I sort of remain skeptical, but, you know, I do, I do know that the organization was intent on doing what they could to see if they could make it work. Just back to the Sedins for a sec. Have you even taken a moment to contemplate, like, what if Henrik thinks JT Miller should be a center and Daniel feels strongly that he should be a winger? Yeah, I, I, I think they'd, um, I don't know. I don't know what they'd do. I think, uh, I bet you they think he's a winger though. <laughs> <laughs> Intelligent guys like that. Come on. Not after reading your piece yesterday. They know JT Miller. Yeah. <laughs> One thing they definitely think is that Drance is a flip flopper. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to pick up on something that I remember you said, cause you did that piece where you sat down with Daniel and Henrik and you went over you know, some of the greatest plays of their careers. And it was a cool article and it was a great feature. And just, a, uh, you know, the fact that they bought in and spent the time they did with you. And, you know, they've been away from the game for three seasons now, right? I mean, we'd see them around the rink when we were around the rink seeing people. But, uh, you know, they would pop in from time to time and say hello. They still had friends on the team, uh, that kind of stuff. But they have stepped back, obviously, from the National Hockey League. And yet, I, I think I remember you telling me, like, you know, these guys are still pretty dialed into the things that they were seeing in the current and, and modern game. Like they may be, maybe retired, but they're still keeping pretty close tabs on things. hundred percent. Well, and 
I, I like the idea that if they were ever to like spend time in player development, you'd just have this team of players all capable of perfectly handling pucks rimming around the wall at speed on their backhand and like making no luck, making no luck one touch saucer passes uh, immediately upon controlling it. Uh, be fun to watch. <laughs> but uh, but, you know, the, look, the twins are as cerebral as it gets. And I think there's no question that people of that intelligence level work ethic and you know character can help any organization like you know whether you're a fortune 500 company or a hockey team and obviously the the hockey team would have um you know more to do with the area of the twins specialization but i actually don't even think it matters like if i was running an investment house i'd want these guys working for me um or or with me because i you know i i just think that highly of who they are as people yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they have an on-ice role in any capacity of, like, player development. I mean, it, it, to me, it sounds like it's above that, that this would be in a management role. And yet, I wonder if they would want to be hands-on in any way. Uh, but, you know, we saw it with a guy like Gretzky going behind the bench in Phoenix. Like, it's one thing to be a great player. It's another to be a great coach. And obviously, it didn't work out uh, necessarily for, for Wayne. There were other issues down in the desert. Uh, as there still are uh, all these years later. But, uh, you know, like I'm just trying to envision Daniel and Henrik getting in the Volvos and heading out to Abbotsford to work with prospects. Like, I, I have trouble seeing that, but, like, I don't know at this stage, you know, what they want these roles to be. No, and nor do I, to be totally honest. I, I just think that they want to be put in a position where they can help and where they can succeed. And I think they're going to be very deliberate about where their feet fall. Um, whether that ends up, you know, involving some on ice work or, you know, some training work or, you know, player development, cons you know, consulting with some prospects in Abbotsford. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I think that's still work in progress. So curious to see where this lands. I still, I still think it's, ha I still think it happens. Um, but obviously not quite on the accelerated timeline that we all expected uh, when the news first broke, what, I guess 10 days, 11 days ago now and conversations yeah. had been ongoing for weeks before it. So uh, you know, certainly interesting that that it's not dragged out, but but that it's you know unfolded in such a patient fashion. And I think one one other thing that that suggests strongly to me, JPAT, too, is that you know the market's first reaction was like this is uh, this is an example like this is a PR play, right? Like an empty PR play. Uh, these guys are baubles, right? But they're not, then they're not going to be. And I think one of the reasons why this has taken so long is how seriously, you know, they intend on taking this in the event that they commit to rejoin the organization in a management capacity. I do wonder, though, like, because there was talk at one point, like, they're going to be shields, they're going to be on either side of Jim at his year-end press conference, and then they got Travis done, and they were able to put Travis there. You know, had things gone sideways with Travis Green and he had walked, you know, might that have expedited all of this? And, and you know, I think it is still possible that they could have turn to a plan B of introducing the Sedins to try to take a little bit of the heat off. But I think the fact that they got the coach done and were able to present him a week ago, you know, changed that course of action for. I don't think so. I don't think the twins no. were ever going to get done that quickly just because of who they are and how they are and how they go about their business. I think they were always going to take their time, do their full due diligence. Like, I don't think that was ever a realistic option uh, to put the twins up with Jim. Although, you know, uh, being being in a trio with the Sedine twins, I mean, would have resulted in a lot of nice tap-ins for, for Jim. I mean, <laughs> he'd never have had it so easy. 
Right. And again, it's parallel universe stuff. We'll just never know. But like the temperature was pretty high. And if the coach had said, no, that's it, I'm gone. Like you do wonder. And and I agree that the twins would have had some say. Like they wouldn't want to be used in that way. But I do wonder if it would have uh, sped the process to try to get something done with them so that the club would have had an announcement that, you know, I think would be universally embraced in this market. Hey, one of the things that I love about playoff hockey, I prefer it when the Canucks are in it, just because uh, the season goes on and, and the fan base is that much more engaged, although uh, offseason brings uh, certainly plenty of uh, angles to attack, and, and we'll do that. But what I love about playoff hockey is just getting to watch players that I don't see on a daily basis and getting to watch them you know, night after night after night. And especially in this year when there was so much focus on the Canadian division, I'll admit that I didn't tune into. Uh, a lot of games that were being played uh, south of the border. And so I think you tweeted this out the other night about Mitch Marner on the penalty kill. And I remember when the Canucks faced the Leafs midseason as well. And it jumped out at me that, you know, the Leafs use guys like Marner and they use Zach Hyman on the penalty kill. And you see Mark Stone doing it in Vegas and uh, Ajo and Stahl in Carolina. Brad Marchand has been a staple of Boston's penalty kill for a while. All these good players the take on that duty, and I love sort of that chess game within the game of watching these smart guys up ice, you know, trying to force the uh, power play into positions that it doesn't want to get to on the breakout. And I do, I dream of the day that the Canucks can incorporate better players on their penalty kill. I mean, we've talked about this in the past. We've talked about how Bo Horvat sort of profiles as a guy that should be a better, better penalty killer than he is. Uh, they used him a little bit down the stretch due to some injuries there, but it is one aspect of the game that I love is these teams that employ their best players in that fashion. Well, and you didn't even mention Mitch Marner. Mitch Marner, Alex Kerfoot. That that I did. I mentioned Mitch Marner right off the top, and I gave you credit for your point. <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. I, <laughs> and you didn't even mention Jordan Stahl <laughs> and Sebastian Ajo. <laughs> Well, I did, but that's all right. Carry on. Well, and you forgot Brad Marchand. Yes. <laughs> wow. And there's this guy in Vegas, Stone. You may have heard of him. He's Mark incredible. Stone, did you mention him? <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, J-Pat. The <laughs> I don't know what happened to me there. I was just like listening to the names and I was like, where's Mr. Marner? Um, my goodness. I... Uh, <laughs> I'm a space Blame it on today. the dog. Blame it on Wallace. Yeah, no, he's sleeping. It's, he's, he's a oh. good boy. Um, okay. the, yeah, so no, I, I, I agree with you. And the guy that I think could do it really well among Vancouver's elite players is Elias Pettersson, right? Like Elias Pettersson, I think could be really disruptive. He's got that hand eye, like he can bat pucks out of the air, you know, like you couldn't send saucer passes within several feet of him. He'd be too high risk to tip it. Even, even that threat causes teams to attack differently on the power play. But here's the problem with Elias Pettersson, I think, from a Canucks perspective, is the guy is a maniac. Like, there's nothing he does that he doesn't want to do 100% right, always. And so, would you be comfortable putting him out there knowing that he's going to sell out to block shots and he's going to put himself in harm's way because that's what the job requires to do it right and he's going to do the job right? Um, I think there's an understandable reluctance to put him in a stationary defensive spot considering the injury risk. And, you know, I, I honestly can't disagree with it, right? Like, I can't disagree no, I, with it. No, I, I hear you. And, and absolutely, it's a risk. I mean, we see it all the time. Guys putting themselves in harm's way. 
Um, but the other have thing you too seen is chatter. That, by the way, there's a lot of chatter in our market, especially in the athletic comment sections. Like, there's some like Pedersen. There's two things that are being said about Pedersen that are b- bothering me, JPAT, that I just wanted to quickly touch on. One is sure. one is this idea that he's now um, like often hurt. Have you been seeing this? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I mean, he had a concussion in his first year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from from Michael Matheson, remarkable human being. <laughs> yes. And he got tangled up with Kakaniemi in the right. So yeah, in Montreal. Right. And he had the and that was a knee, and then yeah. and then he had a freak fracture on his wrist, which you know he didn't return from this past season. Um, do any of those does any of that profile to you as a guy with like a repetitive injury history or are those just a bunch of freak incidents? Um, I don't think there's any durability concern there for me at all. Like none that happens. It's hockey. Um, bad hit freak collision with Kakaniemi weird freak collision that, you know, sorry. And I said fractures wrist. We don't actually know if it's a fractured wrist or not. And I don't know if it's fractured. We just know that it's a wrist injury. Um, and yes. obviously a severe one because it kept him out for so long. So, um, but yeah, the, I mean, that, those are all freak. Those are all freak things. Like, I don't, I don't see, we need a lot more, you know, we need a lot more, I think, before we say that this guy who in his first two seasons missed 12 games combined and then lasted through a playoff run is, you know, a significant injury risk just because he got injured for three months down the stretch this year. Like, I don't see anything that's like, th- these aren't repetitive injuries. It's not like there's a core issue here or like, a back, a back disc issue that's, you know, a concern for, for the long term. There's nothing like that. It's right. ridiculous. No, it's ridiculous. Yep. And then the other one that I'm, I'm seeing a lot of is like, Pedersen's overrated. People are like, you know, he's not a superstar. Like, who, why, why, why are people calling him? He's over, you know, we overrated what Pedersen is because of this past season. And it's like, you know, guy hit 10 posts in the first 26 games and had 21 points. You know, like there's a world, there's like th- a world where three inches of total difference and Pedersen had 28 points and 50 and 18 goals in his first 27, 26 games. Like, what are we talking about? If, if there's a lot of reasons to be down on this Canucks team, in my, in my opinion, I, I tend to be one of the people in this market who's pretty low on the true talent level of this club. But the one thing that I feel pretty confident about is that Elias Pettersson's really good at hockey <laughs> and the Canucks, like he's the least of their concerns. He's going to have a bounce back season. Quinn Hughes is going to figure out the defensive side of the game. Like those are the two things that I think you should be able to be like, Hey, you know, those are clearly great players. We've seen them excel. Um, they're going to bounce back from what we saw this past season. Like that's the one thing that I'm the most confident about in assessing this club. Um, and I'm, well, and I'm, and I'm the doomsday sayer. Like, come on, right. come on. I, I don't understand and, what's going on here. And further to your point, like, and I, I, I've raised this before, but my mind is still blown by the fact he played 26 games, Tom, and he had one power play assist. Right. One, like, that's not going to be the way it goes for the rest of his career. He had 16 the season before when they had the fourth best power play. They do have to incorporate him, uh, you know, using him as a decoy. He's their most skilled offensive player. They've got to get him more touches. And they've got to get away from uh, the predictability of everything running through that left side. Like, put him on the other side of the ice. And they've done that at times. You know, put him on his downhill. He can be a playmaker. He can still use his shot from that side. 
Like, I, I do think that that's an area. The Canucks went from the fourth best power play to the 25th best power play yeah. season over season. The component parts are there to be way better. And obviously, Pedersen missed half the season, but he played 26 games and he had one power play assist and it, it drove me nuts that I had to go look it up. It was a second assist on the only Canuck goal in a 5-1 loss in Toronto uh, as part of that six-game losing streak. So he, as a playmaker, he essentially had no impact on the Canucks' power play in the games that he played, uh, you know, in terms of getting the puck to other guys in scoring areas. So, But you know what, you know uh, what, though? You know what, though? Like, when when Pedersen was in the lineup, until Pedersen's injury, PP1 was just as good as it was the year before. They just had bad shooting luck. That's it. That's really it. They're, they just weren't hitting or converting at the same rate that they did the last year. But in terms of generating chances, expected goals, scoring chances, like all of the under the hood numbers on PP1 were totally good. Like where the Canucks in the first half of the season struggled on the power play was that they got nothing. Like it was literally a wasteland on PP2. Um, right. You know, PP, their, their power play is going to be fine in my view. And, and one thing that you notice late in the year, I have some screenshots that I almost used for some armies posts, but I never did was like, you will never see a skinnier PK alignment than, than what the Canucks, than what Canucks PP one faced after Patterson left the lineup. Like teams just stacked four guys up, up in the middle to take away Miller, to take away Bo Horvat specifically, but the Miller to Bo Horvat pass and to take away Quinn Hughes and, and Miller's back and forth game. Without Pedersen, there is no gravity pulling anyone to the right side in terms of how PK clubs lined up against Vancouver. There's just nothing. There's nothing there. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm not, honestly, that's another thing. That's another area. Like, one area where I'm pretty confident the Canucks are going to be good next season is, power, is on the power play. Like, that's, that's one area where I do think you can count on this club bouncing back. Uh, that to me is again the least of your worries. Um, even though, yeah, I mean they they obviously were nowhere near good enough with the man advantage this past season. Well, there you go. People that call you a doomsdayer, uh, we'll we'll end it on a little glimpse of positivity that you know that is the path forward for the Vancouver Canucks is improvement from within. And if you're going to bank on somebody, oh yeah, bank on your best player <laughs> to bounce Seriously? back to be motivated to get. Are you kidding the contracts. me? Like, are you are we are we I mean, what did you see from Pedersen's first two years that convinced you that, you know, the 21 points in 26 games with, you know, leading the NHL in post hits by like a magnitude of like you could times the next closest guys post hit posts hit by two and you'd still be less than where Pedersen was at the time that he got injured. Like what? I just, the it makes no sense. The start to the season was strange. The, the start to the, the, the one point in six and two points in eight games and, and Miller didn't play the first three. That was some of it. No preseason. Like, I think, and I thought that was really sort of fascinating to hear Pedersen bring that up on his own. Uh, you know, we kind of ran through his comments from a week ago as well. But I think that was one of the things that stuck with me was, you know, clearly uh, he's still bothered by the fact that he wasn't at the top of his game to start the season. And so with a full off season and training camp and some preseason games to work off a little bit of rust, you know, I would anticipate that he'll hit the ground running and he'll look a lot more like he did 
in his first two seasons yeah. in the National Hockey League than a guy that, for whatever reason, and it really never was explained, but it's in the past now. But, you know, he stumbled out of the gates. He did. He just, he, he wasn't as sharp as he wanted to be. But, you know, you point out too, I think he was hitting posts early in the season uh, and a bounce here, a bounce there. You know, maybe it jettisons him back into sort of that frame of mind that allows him to be uh, the player that he has. Well, and it wasn't just luck. Like, his first 10 games were weird in terms of the level of play driving, too. There was something funky going on. Right. Um, You know, and and I think, I'm sure, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people around the Canucks were happy to hear that he's going back to Sunspall and Anjé and getting back to his routine this offseason, right? I mean, I think that can only benefit him, too. Although, first, he's doing this barnstorming tour of North America, hanging out on the (laughs) lake with Brock Besser and and recording diss tracks with Michael Bublé. But the, <laughs> the like, fundamentally, fundamentally. But I think that's I think that's important, too. Like, I, look, I'm not going to try to get inside his head, but he said, and Besser said, like, the injured guys this year weren't around the team. Like, Besser and Pedersen are really good friends with the pandemic and the protocols and everything. Yeah. They didn't get to see each other. So I'm glad to see that he's totally. going and hanging out with his buddy. That's, that's what he should be doing in the well, offseason. And, and everyone deserves a little bit of happiness after the year. That we've all lived through, right? Like everyone deserves, Completely. everyone yeah. deserves to enjoy some time on the lake, um, you yes. know, if they can. But, uh, but including you know, including Mitch Marner and and, and who did, did you mention Mitch Marner? <laughs> well, <I did>. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, just if if <laughs> if you're not confident that Pedersen's going to bounce back, like I don't, I just don't know what you're watching. I, I have no idea what you're watching. And to conclude that a guy who's had three freak injuries completely unrelated to one another has got all of a sudden got a durability issue uh, blows my mind. Like that is, that is a, that is a foregone conclusion in need of justification, not a, not a reasonably reached one. And I, j- I just wanted to mention that because I'm seeing it increasingly in my comments uh, in our comment section at the athletic and the VIPs are savvy. So if VIPs are saying that, then I'm sure there's a lot of Canucks fans privately, um, you know, who think it. And I just want to push back on it because I just I don't think there's any basis, uh, you know, evidentiary basis for that. Well, next week brings the draft lottery, and so that'll give us uh, more talking points. And again, it'll it will solidify <laughs> where another the- Canucks draft lottery. Yay! Yes, exactly. Oh, and I mention that because the Athletic Hockey Show is now expanding to five days a week. You already had Woo-hoo! Mondays with Ian Mendez and Haley Salvian. Tuesdays is Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly. Wednesday we've got the two man advantage with Burnside and LeBron. Thursday it's Ian Mendez and down goes Brown. Now on Fridays, and this is something that Canuck fans uh, probably want to latch on to. Again, they're likely to have a top 10 pick unless they do something with it. But the Prospect Series goes on Fridays now with Max Boltman and Corey Pronman. (laughs) The uh, Detroit Red Wings writer. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well versed. Well versed. (laughs) No one knows prospects like Max. (laughs) I love it. Um, Max Max is a bright, bright guy. That'll be must listen. And yeah. and look, there's you know we'll we'll get into this. I'm sure we'll have sure. tons yep. of debates, uh, especially in the event that the Canucks somehow move up. But the you know the don't don't trade this pick. There's there's really good players available. Like I, I think Benier, despite what Central Registry said, I think he'll go ahead of um, guys like McTavish and who's the North Vancouver kid? He was third. Kent. What's his Kent last Johnson. name? Port, Kent Johnson. Kent Johnson. Port Moody. Port Moody. Okay. But we why can't did take I, credit for... Why did I think we can't take credit for? I don't know, but we can't take credit for all the great players. <laughs> so sure, so. Jeff Patterson, <laughs> Morgan <laughs> Riley. Um, yes. No, but the... 
Uh, like that kid, that those guys are legit. Those guys are so good. They're such good prospects. I think McTavish is slightly more likely to stick at center uh, in the NHL, and that may might depending on which team picks. I mean, we've seen with you know the Barrett Haytons and Kakaniemis of the world, right? Centers tend to be prioritized. Guys who the industry believes will be natural centermen in, at the NHL level, but like there's going to be really good players. The Canucks are going to add a really good player at nine or ten. And, you know, I, I mean, you got to hold on to that pick because that guy's going to be 20 before Pedersen and Hughes hit their 25th birthdays, right? Like that's, that's the type of artillery you need. The additional 3 million in cap space or 6 million in cap space from bundling that pick to get off Erickson for this season, like even that 6 million leaves you with 14 million to ish, 14 million ish to rebuild your defense core and, and third line. Like the leverage of that does not compare with hitting on a top 10 pick in this draft class who's going to be potentially uh, and more more than potentially like likely to contribute in some way to your NHL roster while Pedersen and Hughes are still in their statistical primes. Like it makes no sense that that's a talking point that needs to die. The, the Canucks should be am- keeping and making that pick. Unless they're trading down to get extra bullets. I'm here for the Canucks adding all sorts of better players. Yes. Whether it's through the draft or <laughs> free agency or trades and or then, whatever. And then putting them on the PK. <laughs> and then put them on the PK. Let's go. And score some, score some shorthanded goals, too. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing about putting good players out on the penalty kill is, you know, hey, on the on occasion, you're going to get a counterattack. You might actually score a shorthanded goal, something the Canucks really aren't a threat to do. Uh, with the personnel that they employ. Check out our comment section for every podcast episode we do. There's uh, a specific comment section there, so drop us a note, uh, some feedback. It's always welcome. Uh, I'm in there checking it out from time to time. So check out our comment section for each podcast episode of the Athletic app. Rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. And if you're not already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for $3.99 a month. Bring on Game 7. What a steal. Minnesota. Vegas. Vegas. Vegas in a game seven. My goodness. They always make it so hard for themselves, huh? Haven't seen a lot of broom in this series. You picked Mini. I've got Vegas, so let's see how this thing shakes down. And I picked Mini in seven, by the way. I've got almost every pick wrong. That's all right. It's incredible how badly I've done. Like, uh, I had the Panthers. That didn't happen. I had, um, obviously, I had the Oilers. Everyone had the Oilers. I had the Caps. Um, so I think, like, I kind of need Mini to come through here. I need Mini and Toronto to come through here so that I, like, go 500 almost. Well, big weekend ahead. We'll uh, see how it all plays out. We'll reconvene and we'll do this again uh, with new episodes. Lots of Leafs talk on, on Monday's yeah. episode. Exactly. <laughs> uh, new episodes of the VanCast, including, uh, well, we'll look at Wednesday is the draft lottery. So that'll sort of be news of the week. But we'll see what the weekend holds. Uh, if there's anything new with the Canucks, we'll be all over it next week. When we get back at it. Uh, emer- emergency pod if the Canucks win the draft lottery? Uh, we may have to go down that road. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we shall see. For Drancer, it's J-Pat, as always. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Have yourself a great weekend. This has been another episode of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.